0: Okay. So here we are. Second podcast. This has been a challenging one, just primarily for technical reasons. Um, probably more complicated than we were hoping for. But hey, this is, this is the age that we live in trying to get a podcast done with someone that chooses to live in Chicago when really <laughs> he should be out in the UK. You know, when it's all done, though,
1: it'll be seamless. It'll, it'll be as if we're in the same room.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly how it'll sound to the people out there in the world. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. So, here we are, podcast number two. So, we uh, welcome to people that are joining us again. Um, we are now, uh, yes, in that difficult second album stage. Uh, so, we are, we've are. we chosen two movies to, to explore, discuss, have a little bit of a deep dive. Um, we think that they both share sort of common elements and common themes, because we always talk about how themes are really important uh, for things in the big picture. So the two movies that we've chosen is, well, deemed to be a classic of the French New Wave from the 1960s, which is Cleo from 5 to 7, um, directed by Agnes Varda. Um, and if you wa- do you want to say a little bit about that, that movie? Just give, sure. give... Folks, a, a sense of what the what the film is about, Tom. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, it
1: takes place in France and follows a a young uh, singer, and she's like right on the cusp of fame, not quite very famous yet, but it, she's like right there, and in the opening scene, she has a uh, a very alarming encounter with a fortune teller named Madame Irma, and Madame Irma gives her some some very bad news, it seems, and we soon discover that Cleo is awaiting the results of a cancer test, and the film is told pretty, very close to uh, real time, not quite literally real time, but pretty pretty close, and it follows Cleo as she kind of makes her way through Paris, uh, encountering different people, old friends, co-workers, strangers alike, uh, all kind of trying to, um, to navigate her life in this day leading up to getting these results from her doctor. Um, ultimately, mm-hmm. she meets this this soldier on leave named Antoine, and that's kind of the climactic conversation, the beginning of a a new and possible, possibly fruitful relationship with this this man she meets. And the culminating point is her um, learning from her doctor that she does, she is indeed sick, uh, the implication being that she does have cancer, but she spoiler says, alert. "Spoiler alert, sorry." Um, mm-hmm. But as will as I'm sure we'll discuss, the movie has, um, oddly enough, something of a happy ending. At the end of the film, mm-hmm. having had the results, she says, "I actually feel happy." Um, so mm-hmm. it sounds like it would be a, a very bleak narrative based on my spoiler-heavy synopsis, um, but it's actually a very Strangely enough, optimistic uh, movie, very beautifully filmed, uh, very energetically Mm. filmed, and I think it um, dovetails really, really interestingly with your film choice, which is Mm. Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty.
0: Um, The Great Beauty, La Grande Bellezza, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So would you mind uh, giving a little synopsis of that, Gabriel?
0: Yeah, I guess just to say that talking about Cleo from five to seven, I mean, any discussions about that film and the same with The Great Beauty is, you know, you can't help but but have spoilers because I think the ending is so important, isn't it, to to a real thorough discussion about the film in terms of its meaning. Um, The Great Beauty, less, uh, there isn't really spoilers in The Great Beauty, but um, The Great Beauty came out in 2013. Uh, written and directed by Paolo Sorrentino, as, as Tom just said, um, stars uh, an actor that uh, Paolo Sorrentino has used quite a few times, uh, Tony Savillo, and he plays Jep Gambardella. And he's the key protagonist. If we look at uh, Cleo being the, the main female protagonist in Cleo from 5 to 7, Jep is that main protagonist for this movie. Um, he's 65 years old, uh, and he's at a crossroads in his life. Uh, when we when we start the film, and the, the the story effectively is that he is a journalist for a celebrity uh, magazine in Rome. So the whole film takes place in Rome. Um, he's part of uh, you know the 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 successful and you know opulent and intellectual elite of Rome, um, and he's he's essentially he's the leader of that pack. So he's been spending the last 40 years in Rome becoming the main player, as it were. You know, the the, the the head party animal and the head socialite in Rome. But he wrote a book when he was in his 20s, which was a, a huge hit, and loads of people loved it and deemed it as a, as a masterpiece. And he hasn't written any, anything since. And the film is effectively about him Having this this moment, I guess, of crisis where he's looking back on his life and he's reflecting and he's thinking back about has his life amounted to anything? Um, the fact that he immerses himself in uh, this hedonistic lifestyle of Rome and is you know all these parties and you know he seems to be partying every night and you know staying up until the, the wee hours of the morning, roaming around the city, which is beautiful to watch, but as part of this whole idea of him actually looking at the world looking at rome looking at himself internally and thinking does anything mean anything and can he move forward you know is has he given up on his dream and is you know which was to write and to write seriously so i think it's it's a film that, that is loaded in a sense with regret but it's also a film that's loaded a lot with the sense of how do we move on how do we come to terms with um, our lives and our decisions, and what we've, what we've, you know, how we've moved through life, and are we happy with that, or do we want to change things? So it's yeah. very much a film about change, and it's about whether we want to change or not, or if we're happy just staying as we are. Hmm. I think it's very clear with Jep's character that he's not; he's not happy where he is, um, and he needs to move forward. And I think a lot of what he, the, the his journey, is very much tied into his past because he had this this lady love of his when he was in his late teens, which we visit now and again through the film, um, which was a fleeting romance, but is something that held so strongly onto him. And one part of the film is um, that, you know, that that woman's or this love of his life, um, her uh, husband, because she had gotten married, he hadn't, you know, Jeff hadn't seen this woman since his 20s, lost contact with her, but obviously, you know, pined for her and thought, you know about her throughout his whole life, but her husband ends up coming to um, to see Jep, and tells him that she's she's passed away. And one of the key things, one of the key scenes there, is that when he tells Jep that she's passed away, he's got this massive sadness, obviously that she's she's gone, but also the fact that he had read in her diaries um, when she when she died that she really held you know, her heart was very much held for Jep. Right. That she, you know, she pined for Jep in the same way that I guess that Jep pined for her. You know, and there's this comparison, isn't there, with, with things like, um, you know, the, the Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, those types of films that are mm. about the what-ifs. You know, when you have these brief encounters with someone, these romantic interludes, and what would have happened if we would have been together. So the scene, this moment, you can see how Jep is crushed by it, and it's quite interesting that when he had written his masterpiece, I think a lot of that masterpiece and him really pouring out his soul into that book that he wrote was very much tied into that love that he had for this woman. Yeah. And ever since that, since he'd lost that woman and he moved on and he moved to Rome and he threw himself into this hedonistic lifestyle, he's lost contact with it. So there's this moment and it's very early in the film where you know, this husband turns up and tells him that. You feel that that's a trigger for him to move forward and in him moving forward it's almost like he has to reconnect with the past in some way so it's bringing all the past forward to to him so it's quite a you know apologies for a very long-winded explanation of the film but i think it helps to give people i guess a context for where we are with this character oh yeah and that's crucial i mean it's very character driven yeah I, I guess the thing is you know we we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the themes and the things that I think we picked up on that um, that meant a lot to us in the reading of the film and trying to understand what, what they're really trying to say. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to to first of all note that the two films we felt were, were a great accompaniment to each other because they have a central protagonist. I think we both felt that there was a real journey that they were both taking. Cleo's journey is very short. It's an hour and a half. Yeah. It should really have been called Cleo from 5 until 6.30, but right. it doesn't quite work that way, does it? <laughs> And the great beauty takes place over the course of we're not quite sure how many days, but it's definitely days. It could be weeks. Mm -hmm. But both of their stories are very much tied in. Even though they're very different ages, they're tied in with this idea of moving from one point in their lives and moving to a realization and hopefully a moving on through happiness and contentment. And being able to sort of, you know, unclog themselves in a way from the way that their their current life is going. Yeah, that's a great word choice, unclog. That's perfect. I think one of the first things that I I wanted to talk about, Tom, was was the idea of the the love letter to a city, hmm. which I feel that both of them are. I mean, Agnes Varder, I know, you know, in the French New Wave was very good at this, you know, encapsulating the sense of the city because so many things were handheld and they were keeping things on the cheap, and they were trying to control the entire process. Controlling that meant having a very verite style, wasn't it? About having these handheld cameras moving through the city and making it feel like it was real. It was like documentary.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you can you can even see that in the way in which she's filmed as she's walking the streets. So uh, Cleo is played by Corinne Marchand, and... Mm-hmm. She has a, a very striking presence. she's very she's quite tall, and mm-hmm. for much of the film, she has this kind of really vibrant sort of pixie cut blonde wig on. So she really stands out and then you can there's moments throughout the film where you it's quite obvious that she's just walking down an everyday Paris street, you know. Uh, and you can see people, kind of turn and, and look at her, um, uh, you know, staring at her. And there's a there's even a few moments I think in which you know passers by kind of like glimpse into the camera, you know, mm. um, and which I think is is actually works to the to the film's benefit because it's she's very much enmeshed in the city and she's. Even though she is, sort of constantly looked at as she's walking around, people are 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 staring at her, um, very conspicuously. Um, but I think that only underlines, further underlines this sense of sort of isolation and loneliness and stasis that
0: she's that she's in throughout much of the film. Yeah, and in the in the same sense that you've got in the. In the great beauty, because it, it really is a love letter uh, to Rome, um, in the way that the city plays a you know a real significant significant character, and you know Paolo Sorrentino has been compared in some ways to you know the great master Federico Fellini, and he very much acknowledges that that he sees Fellini as as an absolute master of the craft and looks up to him. There are echoes in this film um, to. You know, things like um, Fellini's Roma, Mm -hmm. as well as um, La Dolce Vita, which, you know, is is two classic films, as well as things like Eight and a Half, which is the sense of a central protagonist, both La Dolce Vita with Mastroianni, his main, you know, actor, quite a few times, um, is the sense of just the wandering through the city like a flaneur, you know, this French word, which is this, you know, city wanderer. Mm. And, you know, there's a privilege, obviously, to Jep being wealthy and being able to socialize so he can wander the streets. And you quite a few times throughout the film, he'll wander along the along the passages, you know, moving around Rome um, and, you know, walking along the Tiber in the morning, you know, and getting little glimpses of what's happening in the city at that, that sort of like the waking hours, which is beautiful to see but you know you'll constantly see people wandering past you know like joggers businessmen and people walking their dogs who kind of feel like to be like the normal part of the city whereas he feels like someone that drifts above it you know and mm-hmm. even where he lives you know his apartment which is overlooking the colosseum you know he's got this amazing apartment <laughs> which is you know where you tend to and it, it, it feels very romanesque in a sense that you could imagine 2000 years ago you know where you've got all the emperors, you know, and all the, the you know the, the the high end, you know, socialites and the, uh, the politicians and the philosophers, all sitting above everyone else on the right. high steps, looking down on the rest of the the rest of the normal people. But instead of the nowadays, instead of the philosophers, it's the the glitterati, right? yeah absolutely and and there's a sense of perspective that happens there that when he is wandering around the city because it is very beautiful and and you see um you see some amazing places you're thinking about like a tourist step-by-step tour around the city i mean you could do worse than actually following that film and literally googling every single place within that movie and going to visit it because it it does paint a beautiful portrait of the city Mm. but equally there's so many different other elements to the city that you see, you know, at at one stage, because he's, he's wrapped up in vanity in the same way that all of these people are, you know, at the parties, they're all, you know, Botoxed up to the hilt and they're all beautifully dressed, but it all comes at a cost. And, you know, one of the scenes is, you know, in this almost like cathedral-like, you know, waiting room or this hospital room, which looks like it's, it's a nightclub that's been converted into this, (laughs) this, um, this venue where the doctor comes in, the surgeon comes in to give Botox to everyone, and there's just this beautiful nurse that's sitting there, and you know, next to a cash register, kind of like, right, okay, two grand, two grand, and then yeah. <laughs> you know, they have to take numbers like they're in a supermarket. And there's there's elements that contrast with the beauty of Rome, equally with the decay of Rome, and where I, I guess Paolo Sorrentino, like Federico Fellini, used to do, was was you know, provide a commentary you know, a social commentary on what has gone wrong. The, the opulence and the beauty and the grandeur has got its flip side. And you see that quite a lot through the film in terms of where he journeys, the fact that you keep on seeing, um, you know, Roman statues everywhere that you go, which is a sense of history, but it's a sense of age and decay. You know, and yeah. a lot of times the way that it's filmed and the cinematography um, and the lighting... Is, is sometimes putting a lot of these characters and the, the, the marble cathedrals and everything in quite a dark, you know, menacing sort of sense, but also a sense that makes you feel that this is age. Mm. And Jep is someone that's, that's wrapped up in the sense of age and in the same way that Cleo is, and Cleo from 5 to 7 is wrapped up in her youth yeah. um, and holding on to youth and beauty, but also when she's confronted with the idea of death Mm. is the sense of mortality and i think that's another thing that the two of them share that is although Jepp is constantly wandering around the city and finding these small elements of beauty whether it's a, a murmuration of of birds up in the in the sky or you know he passes some nuns and there's that are sort of wandering around and playing in the in the gardens and and giggling or a, a man walking a dog that that has to kind of rein in his lead, which is electric, and this little Mm -hmm. dog goes flying across the ground. You know, there's these (laughs) tiny little moments which are absolutely sublime, but there is a commentary that happens through it. But that whole theme of the way that both films are exploring the city, but the relationship that we as individuals, how these characters are almost embodiments of the cities that we're talking about, whether it's Rome or Paris. Big time, yeah. And you mentioned the 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 Botox uh,
1: deli, basically, in The Great Beauty. And that had me... You mentioned Roma, too. That had me immediately thinking of the... What's called mm. the ecclesiastical fashion show in Roma. So I think that yeah. that yeah. sequence yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is very much so an echo of uh, Roma in particular. And I think... Mm in both cases, the city is sort of... I agree that it's, it's used as kind of a, a mirror of the characters. There's like jumbled... Sort of like, just as there's jumbled elements of the city mm. that kind of reflects the protagonist's jumbled state of mind. You know, mm. they kind of... Because... Um, during Cleo's journey, she goes all over the place and she meets all different sorts of people and sees all different sorts of things, and in a, in a sense, it's it's kind of chaotic, and I think that mm. that only heightens the anxiety that she feels as she's as she's you know very stressfully awaiting those test results, um, mm. and you mentioned vanity too. And that's, Mm -hmm. like the great beauty, that's, a, I think, a huge element throughout Mm Cleo. A key symbol in that being the mirror, which appears repeatedly throughout, especially early in the film, Um, Mm -hmm. right after she visits Madame Irma, she stops outside, and there's one of those I don't know what they're called, like infinity mirrors where you can see a hundred reflections of yourself going into the distance, you know? Yeah. yeah. And she she sees one of those, and then uh, shortly thereafter, she's kind of, like, uh, you know, fixing her wig, and she says, while looking into the mirror, she says, as long as I'm beautiful, I'm alive. So there's this mm-hmm. sense that, like, her youth, her beauty, those are the things in the beginning of the film to which mm. she attaches so much meaning, and then later when she's in her apartment, which is you know this very, uh, very kind of prearranged studio-looking apartment. It looks more like a something you'd see in a photo shoot than an actual home. But it's yeah. in this in this apartment when she, you know, she's in she's in her bed and she's like looking at herself in a hand mirror and she almost seems like snow white or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course there's, there's this beautiful scene where she's at a hat shop and she's trying on different hats and there's mirrors all over the shop and she's looking at herself in the mirror and admiring herself in the mirror as she's trying on all these hats. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then that symbol kind of takes a turn toward the end of the film because Cleo runs into an old friend of, of hers named Dorothy who seems to be someone who was once a true friend like a genuine friend and not just uh you know someone who's tagging along because she's famous now and it's during her conversations with Dorothy that the mirror once again comes up, but this time it breaks. So it's a it's a it's uh, like a pocket mirror that falls out of mm. Dorothy's purse and shatters. And shortly thereafter, the two of them see a, a shattered uh, window and a storefront. And I think Cleo, who's presented as a very superstitious character, sees that as a bad omen. She's like, oh God, that means... You know, that means I'm dying, right? Um, but I yeah. think you could also make the argument that that the mirror, the shattered mirror, is instead a symbol of her starting to move beyond this this vanity, this obsession with her her self-image. Um, because coinciding with the broken mirror is Cleo sort of gradually removing all of these layers of this celebrity persona that she has. So, by the time the mirror breaks toward the end of the film, uh, she's no longer wearing her wig, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah
0: she's stripped a lot of those things away, hasn't she? As, you know, at the beginning of the film, depending on where she is, you know, the, you know we were speaking about this at one point when we talked about the fact that these characters, they're effectively there... To, to big up her right. ego. And as she's as she's going through and she leaves that situation because she's feeling right, she can't really engage with that, she needs to move. And as she's moving on, she meets slightly different people and it does kind of change her perception of herself, which I think is very true. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and she... and she, Oh, I must also add, she gives the hat away too. And I feel like that's significant. like So she's giving yeah. away all of these... Kind of like mm. totems of um,
0: the trappings of, of her yeah. of her vanity, yeah, yeah, exactly yeah yeah, I think that yeah, you, you, you're right in, in the idea of this the, the mirror I think and I think with both characters with Jeff as well, he's surrounded by this idea. I mean you know, themes that were similar to Felini similar to, to Sorrentino, of this idea of decadence, you know, the interest in celebrity you know, the interest in, in youth and opulence, but, um, you know, and this beauty, you know, to, to Romans, I think generally, and to Italians, we all know that, you know, there's the, like, the sense of the the elegance and the beauty that, that's generally there. But I think what, what you also find a lot with, with Italian films is this connection to faith and religion. And, mm. you know, in The Great Beauty, you've got these these contrasting, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, supporting characters and how they... They're, they're so important in both of these films in terms of their journey. You know, when you think about the great myth, yeah. the great Greek myths. You know, Greek myths are about the idea of who they have as characters in their journey, who they come up against, whether it's a villain, whether it's someone to help them on that journey. You know, a, a sage, you know, a wise person, or someone that's there to, you know, to to act as as like a foil. You know, so and I think right. these, these films are no, they're, they're no different. But in the Great Beauty and in a lot of italian film um you know there there is the idea of, of faith and religion and in in the great beauty you've got the the saint this sage you know who's looks about 127 years old i don't quite know how old she is I, i'm not sure if it's said but she's she's definitely up there and she's in rome yeah. to to pay a visit and you know although that there's you know, there's there's a there's another character that's there from from the um, uh, from the Roman Church, and he's almost like in line to be the next Pope, isn't he? Um, mm-hmm. And he's constantly just talking about food, you know. And it's it, for him, it's very much about ego as well. It's he seems to be less interested in listening to other people's problems or other people's issues, more just talking about you know how great of a cookie is. But this this yeah. saint that comes. <laughs> You know, the saint that comes into Rome to visit, you know, she's like the Mother Teresa character. And she doesn't really say yeah. much, and she almost looks like a child. So even when she comes into Rome and everyone, you know, from, you know, the religious clergy comes in from all different faiths to pay their respect to her, you know, she's sitting on this throne looking like she's going to topple off with her feet about five yeah. or six inches above the ground You know, and you can see her feet dangling back and forth almost like a child on a swing. So, you're kind of, when she's first introduced, you're a little bit dubious about what what is the point of her character here. But what you find out a little bit later in the film, and I think this is why it's really important, is that she is someone that's the antithesis of youth. She's the antithesis of beauty. You know, to everyone else in the film that Jep surrounds himself with when he goes out to the parties and we're talking about Botox and, you know, all of the friends that he's got. You know, she's the mm-hmm. absolute opposite, but she plays a vital part towards the end of the film in terms of reconnecting Jep with very simple things, which is happiness, contentment, you know, and a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Because he has this moment, you know, she comes for a dinner, because, you know, they, they tell Jep, or they want Jep to put on a dinner party. Where she will be invited along, bunch, you know, with a bunch of other characters that come to, to, you know, to his rooftop terrace, and she's a fan of his book. You know, she had read his book as well, and she, you know, she's yeah. a huge fan of him. And and when they're alone together, because you know the the way that the dinner transpires is um, they all have you know food, they talk about various things, but then she goes missing, and no one can find her. So everyone you know is looking around, looking for where she is, can't find her. Jep goes back up to his apartment and goes to sleep, and lo and behold, she's sort of curled up at the bottom of his bed on the floor, totally mm. freaks him out. But then you know they wake up, and you know she basically asks him, you know, why didn't you write another book? And he says, you know, he he feels like he hasn't found that beauty again. You know, this this connection with with things that he had as a as a as a youngster, and. The next bit and you know, the conversation they have is very, very short, with very few words, but she says to him, Do you know why I only eat roots? Because it's well known to everyone that she doesn't you know, she doesn't eat any food. All she does is she eats roots. And he says, I don't know, I don't I don't know why you eat roots and she says, Because roots are important. And that's it. Mm. And in that moment, there's kind of this idea that then reconnects him back to his past, that there's something that he hasn't quite let go of. There's something that he hasn't, you know, that he's almost, you know, buried for the last 40 years while he's tried to become the king of the social scene, you know, in Rome yeah. and gone as far as he possibly can, almost in a sense from who he really is. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been like 40 years of avoidance. And although he likes to talk to his friends and all his friends talk about the decay of Rome and they talk about, you know, all the things that are happening that are bad and terrible, you get the sense that, especially from him, is that all he's doing is he's just talking about waffle. He's talking about all these things that don't really matter, but it's the only thing he really can talk about because that deeper sense of him in terms of his sense of purpose and getting back to, you know, what he's meant to be doing or what he feels he's passionate about and what's going to move in on on it in life is that he's just covered it with um, you know with with stuff you know the blah 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 yeah. which he talks about at one point at the very end of the film you know where he has his final right. monologue to straight to camera he's talking about the blah 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 and that has been what's just taken over for the last 40 years so I think it's very significant for me when I was watching the film that this, this saint you know this religious iconographic figure Is the one that's the real key to him about reconnecting with himself.
1: Yeah, and I feel like um, I I think that for Jep, um, like it's almost as if to get to start that second book is Mm. to acknowledge that time has passed. You know, Uh, yeah, like to 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 begin writing again is to is to face that, yes, 40 years have gone by, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I feel like that's not not writing anymore, or not doing serious writing anymore, because he, mm-hmm. he does what are kind of like clearly kind of fluff pieces for a magazine. Um, yeah. To do that, to avoid that, is almost to like lock himself into that... That like youthful celebrity state that he was in when the first book came out, and the, mm-hmm. the you know the this the, the saint like character, kind of pushes
0: him out of that bubble, mm. um, and yeah, and, it, and well, we, I was just gonna say, Tom, just why yeah. just on that point, you know this idea of time passing, because there's a really significant scene because he's an arts journalist, so he goes around and interviews you know, artists and he goes to theatrical performances and, you know, photo exhibitions and everything. But do you remember there's that scene where he goes to this photo exhibition which is in an outdoor sort of ancient relic auditorium and there's this uh, photographer that literally has been taking photographs of himself over the last 40 years of his life, you know, from when he was a child because he said his father used to take pictures of him every day. And this entire exhibition is literally just individual photographs over this immense you know, period of time. And I think you see as Jep's walking around and he's looking at these photographs, I think that connects very much with what you're saying about the idea of the passage of time. And that when you see that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that how he engages with that is, it's like each one of these things are indicators for him about that idea of time and how important time is. Not to let it imprison you in a sense, but also yeah. to accept it and accept the decisions that you've made, but actually realize, like you said, that I think for him to move on, it's not to stay in that past of this book that is sort of a massive shadow over him, but it's yeah. to be able to say, you know what, I can create something new that's based on my experience now and on what's happened to me over the last 40 years, perhaps. Yeah. You don't know what his book is going to be about. You've got no clue. But all you no. know at the end of the film is that he's ready to write again. He's sort of gotten out of that you know, hiatus period or that, that, that moment of stasis and yeah. he's moved on.
1: Yeah, exactly. I love that sequence where he's looking at the, the photo installation. And mm. correct me if I'm wrong, but he, he cries
0: when he sees that installation, right? Yeah, there's a few times that he cries and he makes it yeah. very clear earlier on when he meets, um, you know, this woman, Ramona, who's, you know, uh, she's a, I don't know, what is she, an exotic dancer, right, and one of his old friends, uh, you know, his old friend runs a club, and, you know, there's a, there's a scene where they have to attend a funeral for one of his friend's daughters, and this new girlfriend of his, Ramona, comes with him, and he, and he says prior to going to the funeral, because, you know, they end up, he takes her to go get a dress, but he talks to her about the ritual of funerals, yeah, you need to kind of get up at a certain point and go over to, you know, the bereaved. And then everyone will see you there. So you kind of like, you know, you're taking center stage. So he's almost like thinking about it as a performance. And he talks about the idea that you shouldn't cry. Right. Because because in a way you're upstaging, you know, the tears or the, the grief of, of, you know, whoever it is that's lost someone. So but at that yeah. moment he cries too. And you actually see him a few times, and I think it's true that at the pho- photography exhibition you do, you see him cry again. There's something about these yeah. re- real emotional moments that he feels that it's no longer a stage set. It's no longer something that he's seeing as a performance. He's actually really feeling mm-hmm. these things, and that's that's vital for him to move on as well, emotionally to move on.
1: Yeah, and I, f- I feel like... Uh the scene with the the photo installation is really significant because it being one of the couple of times when we see him expressing like real deep emotion, mm-hmm. um, I think it speaks to another theme that the two films share, which is sort of art's ability to allow us to kind of access or tap into these repressed emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see yeah, yeah. that... I think we see that in Cleo too, because there's a scene where she's rehearsing new songs with uh, some of her 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 coworkers, they're uh, Bob mm-hmm. and Morris, and yeah, they're yeah. rehearsing these some like new tunes on the piano, and it's when she's singing a, a new song, which is kind of like a a ballad, a very sad song, and it's it's about death and mortality, and. Mm-hmm. That's a moment where she she has a very strong reaction to it, and she stops. She actually has to stop singing because she's she's getting caught up in the song, and she she gets mad and says like, "I don't want to do this. It's too depressing." Um, but it's a moment where yeah. we we can kind of see the real Cleo because uh, yeah. it's it's one of those. Beautiful moments, like almost magical realism, because the the camera slowly pulls into her as she's singing, and um, the the background fades away of her apartment. It becomes black, and uh, she's staring directly into the camera. You know she's breaking that fourth wall, very French New Wave, mm. and um, yeah. Yeah. and then the the piano music that's been accompanying her in the apartment swells into this full-blown orchestra so mm. it's almost like this this song that is indirectly commenting on her own struggles mm. kind of helps uh helps her go to that other place kind of like helps her transcend the the moment and and see the bigger picture so yeah, that's no, yeah
0: yeah, and I think uh, again with with the Great Beauty, you've got you've got similarities. You've got sort of things that, that that are common between the two, because you know there's a choir in the Great Beauty that starts at the very beginning. You know, at um, you know at the at the Fontana del Aqua Paola and Janiculum Hill, which I've been to, which is an amazing spot in Rome, hmm. and that's where the Japanese tourist basically dies. You know, he, he, yeah kind of keels over and he's just taking some photographs out on Rome, you know, this sort of slight nod to the idea that it's so grand and beautiful it can almost kill you. Yeah. You know, this, you know, the, the, you know the weight of history and the weight of beauty of the place. But, you know, that's the first time that we hear this choir mm-hmm. and you hear the same motif going out through the, throughout that entire film. And again, you know, this, this idea, this sense of like an elevated you know this this grandness this beauty you know the idea of almost like from the heavens you know this this music comes down and then you've got pop music and you've got all sorts of stuff and i think again there's there's that that sense of this carnivalesque array of characters and sounds and music and things that you know fellini also does in his films yeah but you know, the, the the idea of art connecting us, you know, what you were saying about or allowing us to connect with emotions and to express ourselves. You know, the great beauty starts with a, a quote from, uh, you know, Louise Ferdinand, Celine's journey to the end of night. And, you know, there's also the quote that recurs to the end of the film as well. But the quote at the beginning is really good because it talks about the sense of a journey, you know, mm-hmm. life's journey. And the quote is traveling is very useful. It makes your imagination work. Everything else is just disappointment and trouble. Our journey is entirely imaginary, which is its strength. And the idea of the imaginary, you know, in terms of a filmmaker and an artist, is, the, is this concept, isn't it, of, of being able to, you know, the, the things that we connect with most throughout our lives usually are fleeting memories. They're things that we encapsulate, but we imagine, you know, when we use our memory and we look back at something, we can imagine it in a very different way than maybe how it happened. Yeah, You know, that's the power of the imagination is to create this existence. And the two films are very, very different because there are certain elements to Cleo that has, you know, Agnes Varda was very revolutionary in some of her techniques and some of the things that she did that I think were pioneering, you know, in terms mm. of the French New Wave, the way that she would cut specific scenes and the... You know, even the one that you're talking about where she's singing, where the camera then sways around and then disappears, you know, into a blackness and we see her in a slightly different context breaking the fourth yeah. wall and, you know, the staggered scene of her coming down the steps when she first comes down from, you know, speaking to the um, the, the woman that does her tarot reading. Mm-hmm. You know, and it kind of does it three or four times. It repeats the same scene. And yeah. there are tricks that she uses. I mean, Sorrentino's method is a lot more of... There's, there's, a, there's a huge array of different tricks that he uses. But mm-hmm. the the point of focus, and I think that's another thing that's recurring between the two films, is you mentioned it before about breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. and about both characters looking at the camera. And, you know, Jep does it on a few occasions. We see him at the very beginning and he's looking directly at us because he's narrating to us his story. Yeah. So when he's talking about where he's at, you know, what he's feeling, you know, his, his internal dialogue, he's doing it directly to the camera. Yeah. And we have that, you know, quote at the beginning, but we equally have, you know, at the very end of the film, when he returns to the island where he had that, you know, kind of romantic liaison with, with this this woman. Eliza, know, this, uh, right? Eliza, this perfected, you know, creature for him, you know, the what-if character, you know, the yeah. one that he's basically, you know, He's been able to imagine her as the perfect person right throughout his entire life but when he comes back to the island and he's reconnecting again to that moment that they met and they had this romantic moment under the moonlight you know together, he has this um last final monologue and this is where he really connects with the idea that he you know he can move on and he says. This is just the the, the monologue that he says. He says, but first there was life hidden beneath the blah, blah, blah. And this is what we were talking about before. The blah, blah, I think in that context refers to all this, you know, parties and hedonism and all this stuff that he's kind of wrapped himself up with. You know, all this art world, you you know, writing all these fluff pieces and all that stuff. And it says, it is all settled beneath the chitter, chatter and the noise. Silence and sentiment, emotion and fear. And we're talking about emotion and fear, you know, for Cleo. Fear is a massive thing for her, isn't it, throughout the entire film? Because she's fearing right. her death. Yeah. But she's also connecting with emotion, isn't yeah. she? It's like the emotional things when she meets you know, a character that we'll, we'll talk about briefly in a minute. But then he says, The haggard, inconstant flashes of beauty. And then the wretched squalor and miserable humanity, all buried under the cover of the embarrassment of being in the world. Blah, blah, blah. Beyond there is what lies beyond... I don't deal with what lies beyond. Therefore, let this novel begin. After all, it's just the Mm. trick. Yes, it's just the trick. And he's saying all this Mm. to the camera, almost like he's realized it himself. So you really get the sense that Mm. he's moving forward. You know, he's reaching his moment of clarity. Yeah. I I feel like that's another
1: thing that the films share, which is this idea, as cliche as it has kind of become, which is that the end is the beginning, you know the mm-hmm. end of the mm-hmm. great beauty is is Jep's new beginning because he's finally able to say like okay let's let's start this damn book you know let's do it
0: absolutely and, yeah 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 and yeah.
1: then and then with and that's like Cleo with Antoine
0: um, when she meets Antoine yeah, yeah exactly
1: yeah exactly and she so she meets Antoine and uh, he's. Uh, a soldier on leave from Algiers, which is mm-hmm. Varda's way of, of kind of contextualizing the story and, and giving mm-hmm. some, you know, making it of that time a little bit. Um, yeah. And he's a, probably the character, even though he's a complete stranger, with whom she has the most meaningful conversation. And the mm-hmm. quote that you mentioned from The Great Beauty, this emphasis on quiet. Um, mm. Cleo and Antoine meet in a park alone mm. and mm-hmm. there's, uh, their first discussion occurs you know, in front of this kind of peaceful waterfall and um, water also plays a key role in the great beauty obviously mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. Jep sees the, the ocean in his daydreams on the ceiling uh, the, yep. the key moment with Eliza happened on that little island with a lighthouse and it's during this meeting with Antoine, who, because he's a soldier, is also facing this prospect of possibly dying when he goes back to the war. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that maybe shared... That shared experience that connects them. And it's... Um, he's with her when she finds out that she is indeed sick. But like mm. I said earlier, it's also... I think the first and only time that she says I feel happy and I think she feels happy because even though it's even though it's bad news now she knows she at least knows so it's kind of like yeah well my I might be sick but now I know there's no more ambiguity and I can kind of get out of this like 90 minute nightmare that I've been in and I can move on with my life and I can I can mm. I can push forward. So I think that both films share that idea that the characters at the end are able to um, kind of escape
0: this, this trap that they find themselves in. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a sense of resolution, really, isn't it? That, that that's really like a key um, key part where we, where we end in those in both of those films. And I think those supporting characters, you know, we were saying how important the supporting characters are. And I think in both films, and I, th- I found it quite interesting that, that two of the stars or two of the main characters in Jepp's life, you know, Ramona, who he finds, he sort of sees her as someone that's very, very different to the people that he normally hangs out with, right? So the, right. the, the, the idea of the, the prostitute, again, we're talking about Italian film, right? And we're not just talking about Fellini, but we're yeah. talking about the influence of things like the church, but then you've got like the opposite of it, right? You've got the idea of hedonism and what represents, you know, hedonism more than someone who's a prostitute, right? Or someone that's, a, you know, an exotic dancer in this context. So I think yeah. there's the idea that he connects with her and, you know, I won't go into great depth about her character, but she's she's a really good character that sort of starts to open him up to to question a little bit more and is more authentic than in a mm. way it seems like his other friends are, who are always either telling him what he wants to hear, you know, bigging up his ego, or, you know, he's known them since they were I don't know, in in their twenties or thirties. Ever since he got got to Rome, and are basically fulfilling the same sort of life that he is. You know, they they, they yeah. they've got the same drives and motivations. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas whereas Ramona isn't, but his other friend um, and someone that he's known, it seems throughout his whole life is is someone called Romano, and you know Romano is another one of these characters that is constantly. You know, circling around the the rest of his gang, right going to all the parties, but it just seems like he's out of place. You know, he's a little bit of a nerd, you know, he lives in his own, you know, in this tiny little apartment. You know, he's got a relationship with a woman that doesn't seem to care much about um romantically at all, but she's basically there to to use him as a as, you know, as a slave boy, you know, to drive him around, to take him from place to place. But you know what yeah. I found interesting—the airport, Romano, yeah, take it to the airport. So Romano knows Jep really, really well, and there seems to be less bullshit when they talk. And um, both Romano and Ramona—you know—they've they've got this name that is effectively Rome. You know, it's it's saying the same thing. Yeah. And, and Ramona dis- disappears halfway through the film. You know, they have this romantic um, relationship. There's there's always a concern slightly that that she's. Yeah, she's a troubled character, but she she disappears in the film as quickly as she comes into the film. And Romano yeah. decides at one point to say, you know what, he needs to leave Rome. All of the stuff that everyone is chasing and all this idea of trying to to live up to this whole idea of what Rome, you know, expects of, of him almost and what he seems to think like he needs yeah. to do. He needs, you know, he's always talking throughout the entire film about, you know, making his great masterpiece here and, you know, writing this, this, this amazing um, stage play about this, that, and the other. Jep, funnily enough, reminds him at one point, he's just like, write about something that feels authentic to you, right? Your truth. And, you know, once yeah. he finally connects with that and you see at one point a scene of him going up on stage because he's managed to get three days, or Jep has helped him get three days in this theater. And it's, it's a very honest story just about him you know just about his life and his experience and the idea of being in Rome and and it feels authentic it feels like his voice uh, but then very quickly after that he decides to leave Rome he's like right I'm going to return back to my home you know and and it's not a big ceremonial goodbye you know with everyone you know kissing in a big party or anything he basically sees his friend and says I'm leaving and that's it he's gone so again these characters yeah. within the films you know they play such an important role don't they Uh, in helping to connect the characters with their sense of authenticity, their truth.
1: And that speaks to the, I think this overarching idea that you can't, you can't self-transform, you can't evolve or become a better person just by yourself, right? These things don't Mm. happen in a vacuum. You have to, you need other people in order to, to make those realizations about those selves, yourself. So, you know, Jep has um, has Romano, the like mm. you said, the friend who's able to to see to see past all of that, right? And then, yeah. um, I think in Cleo, she has her old besides Antoine, of course, she has that old friend uh, Dorothy, who mm. um, who isn't a part of that celebrity culture and is quite happy with her life. And um, I I think that that's that's a really important. lesson if you will that both films have for the viewer which is like if you want to get
0: better you can't do it alone you gotta you you have to be you have to be 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 in the world yeah 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 no very very true so yeah speaking at length about these two films obviously we highly recommend them to anyone that's listening to this podcast so Cleo from 5 to 7 an absolute classic and probably Agnes Varda's You know, a lot of people consider her masterpiece. uh, Released in uh, 1962, available pretty much anywhere, I think, on streaming. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's probably, you know, great Blu-rays out there with lots of special features. Um, And The Great Beauty, released in 2013. Again, streaming platforms you can get. I mean, check out Paolo Sorrentino's other films. I think his following for the film that he made after with Michael Caine, uh, called Youth, was a really nice companion Piece to the great beauty, just as a you mentioned a companion piece for the great beauty being
1: youth, mm. and I'll I'll toss in uh, if you're looking for a a Varda double bill, a, <laughs> an interesting companion piece, sort of looking at the male side of ego run amok. I would recommend uh, Bonaya or Happiness, uh, which I believe is in the. Brilliant. I want to say early 70s, but that could, that could make for a, a good double bill, too, if you want to get some more Varda in.
0: Um, but what we thought we'd do for the end of this podcast is, uh, because we've dealt with a, a pairing of movies and things that we felt shared lots of themes or ideas, uh, we thought we'd come up with just one other example from, from each of us about films that we think would be a great partnership you know, either as a double bill to watch or just principally just thinking very differently about how these two films can connect um, in ways that maybe people haven't thought about. So my, my suggestion or my, uh, my pairing that I was thinking could work really well together is The Terminator, uh, James Cameron's original Terminator, which I think came out in, uh, was it 1980? 84. 84, 84. So James yeah. Cameron's original Terminator obviously with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and Night of the Hunter, uh, the 1955 black and white film directed by Charles Lawton, is one and only directing gig um, and starring mm-hmm. Robert Mitchum, Shirley Winters, and Lillian Gish. Lillian Gish is a you know, classic actress that had been around since the 20s, but she appeared at the end of that film as, as almost like the protecting mother figure. Um right. I'm not going to go too deeply into that film, um, Night of the Hunter, but uh, I highly, highly recommend it. A complete flop when it came out, um, and that's what sort of ended Charles Lawton's career. But the, the thing that connected the two is this idea of the, um, the relentless pursuer. In Terminator, obviously, you've got this machine that will not stop because it's programmed to do one thing and one thing only, which is to kill... Sarah Connor, and thus end the resistance, um, the future resistance, and Night of the Hunter is effectively, if you see Robert Mitchum's character, you know, who plays this sort of make-believe priest, um, you know, to kind of worm his, his way into this this family home um, with Shelley Winters and, and and, you know, the children, her children, is... The idea that he also is a relentless pursuer—he won't stop at nothing until he can get this money that's been hidden away—and that the children in this house are the only ones that know, because he was in the uh, at the start of the film, he's in he's in prison with, uh, you know, his, his fellow prison inmate is effectively the father of these children, and they talk about how this money has been hidden at his property, so Robert Minsham effectively is is out to get this this cash, and the children go on the run. And throughout the entire film, it's just this constant pursuit of these children by this very, very larger than life, quite creepy uh, character um, that has no sense whatsoever of pr- protecting innocence. He's uh, fueled by greed and greed only, and nothing will get in his way. Yeah. And I think that's the, the that's the thing that I think connects those two films. But fantastic films, both of them, obviously. So what? Oh yeah. What is your suggestion?
1: Before I get to mine, I must say, um, I love *Night of the Hunter* and the, the shot. Even though it's not a horror movie, it definitely has horror moments to it. Uh, the shot of the, the murdered, wife, under in the car underwater with her hair floating in the in the current, is absolutely horrifying. So that's such an effective movie and, and so unsettling. Um, so, excellent choices. But mine are... I was trying to kind of take a similar approach to you in terms of, like, a, a common theme. So I came up with Peter Weir's 1975 Picnic at Hanging Rock and then Andrew Zvigintsev's 2017, I want to say. Let me double check. Uh, 2017, Loveless, and I'll get to give a brief synopsis of both. Picnic at Hanging Rock, of course, is immensely popular and and well known and frequently studied. But we have a um, a class in Australia of uh, from an all girls school who go on this summer picnic at um, at this like very rural uh, natural park, sort of, I guess you can say, and um, a few of the a few of the students just inexplicably disappear while exploring the the rock formations, and then uh, Loveless, which is more of a contemporary example, is was filmed in Russia, and I love Zvigintsev. Um Leviathan is Phenomenal, and I just found out today doing a little bit of research on on the film. He's actually in either this year or maybe in, in likely in twenty twenty two. He's making his uh, English language directing debut, so I'm very excited to, to see that. But anyway, in Loveless we have a uh, a Russian couple who are pretty much going through this just kind of nasty divorce, and their son who's caught in the middle of it. Um, runs away and disappears. And it's never really explained whether he uh, whether he just ran away or if he was maybe kidnapped, that's left very ambiguous. Um, and the sort of connecting idea between these two films, even though picnic is is more kind of mystical and like ex- existential, uh, and Loveless is is more just kind of straight realism. Uh, in my mind, they're connected because they're they're both about sort of unexplained disappearances of key characters, and in both cases, um, we never quite find out what happens to them, or even or even where they go really, and the the kind of like central enigmatic mystery of what happened to this person when they, you know, when they went to that rock formation, or when they went, when they, you know, crossed the street of the apartment complex and were never seen again, is, uh, that mystery is, is always left kind of hanging in, in uncertainty. So, uh, it would be, I, I will give a fair warning, it would be quite a bleak double feature, but I do think that, I do, I do think that, uh, that they, they kind of complement each other in a in a strange
0: w- sort of way. No great choice. So no doubt people out there, anyone listening has probably got their own ideas of of you know great parents of movies or things that seem to work quite well. But I think it's a it's a really really interesting way sometimes to look at films about you know common themes and commonalities. Just another way of of sort of exploring you know depths of movies and and seeing how things can relate and connect and um, you know, how different directors and, you know, even different generations at different times, you know, people can deal with similar issues um, and how those things evolve over time, you know, in terms of social context and, you know, political context, um, you know, filmmaking techniques, you know, because Night of the Hunter was mm-hmm. one of those things where Charles Lawton was experimenting with things that it's a very unusual film and, you know, the, 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 the filming techniques and some of the sequences, were very much ahead of them, their time because Charles Lawton was not a trained filmmaker. I think he was one of these people that was a little bit more of an outsider. So the way that he saw things and experimented with things is he knew less about the rules, you know the formal rules. And I think that <clears throat> that is what makes it one of those films that almost becomes a little bit more timeless because it isn't rooted in a very specific time and a very specific way of filmmaking you know that you would find in the mid 1950s. Uh, yeah and that's what makes it such a such an amazing film to watch now and probably the reason that it has become a classic
1: yeah for sure it it almost feels like a yeah it's a beautiful movie and it, it's 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 almost like a a fairy tale at times a very
0: terrifying fairy tale uh yeah but that magical yeah. realism that some people talk about with movies that you you know sometimes see in a lot of films these days that play fast and loose with these ideas of You know, fantasy. I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is one of those prime examples, isn't it, of, you know, right. magical, fantastical sort of ways of of dealing with things. But there is a realism that's rooted in there, which is a realism related to, you know, personal emotions or, you know, the journey of the soul or whatever it might be. So great, you know, great, great films to check out, I think, all of them. So thanks again for joining us for this podcast, um, and we'll see you next time. So it's goodbye from me in Bristol. And goodbye for me in Chicago.